reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 3 to 9, on page 1145 in the Bible. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments above all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's fields, God's buildings. That's the end of the reading. and honour to be able to be with you this morning and to share with you. Um, a special welcome to our Rice family. It really is wonderful that we can come together as family because Rise, Explosive and our adult congregation are all one family. I normally speak and teach with our young people in Rise, and when I do, I always give them a caveat, challenge everything. Listen carefully to what is being said, what is being taught, and ask the question, do I agree with what I've just heard? If not, why not? If so, why so? So I say the same to you, 
challenge what you hear today. Part of fellowship is being able to hold those that you love and care for to account. So by all means, challenge me freely on anything that you hear today. We're going to be taking a journey through what it means to nurture disciples, to be disciples, also to look at how and why we disciple. Some of you will know this. I work for an organization called the Ascension Trust, and they're the umbrella body that set up street pastors. Part of my role is I go and support our different school and college pastor initiatives that we have up and down the UK, supporting our students and our young people in their communities. Our motto at Ascension Trust is equipping people to serve, equipping the church to serve, to make an impact in their community. We go and enable them to seek out what are the needs of their community, to show the support and love in that, to walk alongside people non-judgmentally, and to help the community to recognise that the Church of Christ is alive. Jesus is also in the business of equipping people to serve. He was all about empowerment. He was all about encouragement. He was all about loving. But unfortunately, he wasn't able to put a trademark on the strapline before we were. But Jesus is all about supporting the local church. Jesus was all about reaching those in your locality. This series that we are looking at, the five marks of mission, evangelism, service, discipleship, justice and stewardship, is a challenge to ask, asking the question, are we equipped to serve our local community? How do we apply these five marks practically to show and encourage and build people up to show them how loved they are by Jesus? Nurturing disciples is all about equipping people to serve. So, as a church body, are we equipping our members and others to serve? Now, our local community may not actually be all that local. A quick show of hands, how many people actually live in the parish where Christ Church is? How many people work in the parish where Christ Church is? We as Christ Church do some incredible ministries on our doorstep. Just to name a few, through the winter months, we have our floating shelter where the churches in Croydon gather together to look after some of the most vulnerable in our society. The coffee shop is a buzz of activity through the week of parents and children and others filled with laughter and joy and the great cafe team and servers and listeners providing the space and the opportunity for people to share life in all of its fullness, both good and bad, easy and difficult, providing the freedom for people to engage. Who Let the Dads Out and Carousel are great examples of fabulous support for young kids and parents in a safe and loving environment. Peace Together explores the concept of brokenness and the healing process that can lead to wholeness 
in fellowship and creativity. There are also many members who are involved in supporting ministries like CAP, the Pearly Food Hub, Healing in the Streets, and the Pearly Town Chaplaincy. And there are many, many more. But like I said, our local community may not actually be all that local. My office for the Ascension Trust is based in Morden, and I also spend a lot of time in Brixton in Lambeth with the youth project there. That is a community where I have been asked to serve. Many of us may have work that takes us into central London, and that may be the community where you have been asked to serve. A few of us may have jobs that take us around the rest of the UK, and that could be community or communities where you've been asked to serve. Some of us have jobs or professions that take us abroad or have been involved in mission trips. That's the community where you were asked to serve. But some of us may also serve outside of work and outside of our church to share our resources and to give our time and support. So community can be found in a variety of different geographical locations. Last week, Alison spoke to us about what it means to serve lovingly. So I apologize if any of this is repeating that message. But what is the point of serving? Why do we serve? The passage in Matthew 28 says, therefore, go and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So in a response to a very direct command from Jesus, are we really serving our communities if we're not baptizing them and making disciples? If we're not passing on all that Jesus has taught and asking us and asking others to obey Jesus' commands? When Jesus first called his disciples in Mark's Gospel, it is simply put, Jesus called Simon Peter and Andrew and said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He then went on to James and John, and he called them, and they followed. In that passage, Jesus is seen as a rabbi, a teacher. He was approximately 30 years old, and so was at the right age to be looking for students. Part of the structure of formal education in that tradition was at 30 was the point where you were able to look for people to call disciples, able to take on students to teach. And no disciple would have followed a rabbi who was younger. So when Jesus turned 30, it was at that point that he was looking for people to invest in, people to pour into. The status of being someone's disciple would have been huge. Within Jewish culture, the rabbi was one of the highest positions that you could hold. It showed intelligence and it showed wisdom. It showed power and a level of righteousness. To be associated or affiliated with a rabbi gave you a reason to walk in public with your head held high. It was a way of saying, as this person's disciple, I am going to be the next big thing in this community. This rabbi believes in me. Also, rabbis would have been looking for students who are going to make them look good.
they knew that who they picked would be their representatives. Students who were going to create a legacy that meant after the rabbi had passed on, their teachings and their status will still be known. So there was a lot at stake for both rabbi and disciple in who got selected. But Jesus didn't select from the current grade of top-level students. Jesus didn't look to take on the students who would make him look good. If you weren't a disciple by 15, you weren't allowed to continue with formal education at that point, and were often asked to find work in a lesser trade, which was more often than not the family business. The first disciples that Jesus called were Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were fishermen. Their fathers were also fishermen, and the generations before them would more than likely have been fishermen. Fishermen were not highly regarded. They absolutely stank of fish. They were out during unsociable hours and didn't have much capacity to be integrated into society. But they were hardworking people. And they always used to work as a team to cast the large nets out and to gather them in. Seeing as the Bible only references Peter is being married, it can be assumed that some of these disciples were also young teenagers. Tradition asked the boys and men at that time to be married at 18. So with these four, and Thomas, and Nathaniel, and Philip, the main bulk of Jesus' disciples would have been young fishermen. Matthew would have been slightly older, as he was a tax collector for the Roman government. But as such, he would have been hated and despised by the Jewish people. He would have been called a traitor and a cheat. Simon was known as a zealot. Whilst this was not strictly a profession, the zealots engaged in politics and in anarchy. They were there to attempt to overthrow the Roman government. So Simon would have been seen as a troublemaker and as dangerous. We don't know too much about Judas's profession, but John's Gospel describes him as a thief before he went on to betray Jesus. And the Bible provides no information on the profession of Bartholomew or of Thaddeus. But going on Jesus's track record, I don't think that they will have been thought of too highly within that community. So here we have a group of young guys who has a teacher tell them to follow him. No other rabbis had picked them, and no one in their right mind would have done. The disciples will have seen this as a second chance. Here was a rabbi who was willing to put his neck on the line for these students, to take them under his wing, and to teach them all that he knew. A teacher who was willing to put his legacy in their hands. A teacher who was literally willing to turn the tables to create a new normal. There was a man called Thomas J. Watson who was the CEO of IBM between 1914 and 1956. IBM had survived the Great Depression. Gambling on a post-war boom 
Watson had maintained IBM's employment levels by increasing it, the inventory when there was little demand. There was excess machinery and parts that crowded the warehouses. They simply had too much stock. Some of the board members were concerned by this and started to get fed up of the lack of sales. They started to lobby to remove Watson from his position as the president. Watson needed these machines to be sold. A very large government bid then came on the table. Watson and IBM needed this deal. A young salesman was tasked with closing the deal. But unfortunately, he failed. He cost the company several million dollars by not getting that bid. Later that day, the young salesman showed up in Watson's office and handed over an envelope with his resignation in it. Watson knew what was in the envelope and was expecting it. Watson asked the man, what happened? The salesman outlined every step of the deal. He highlighted where mistakes had been made and what could have been done differently. Finally, he said, thank you, Mr. Watson, for giving me this chance to explain. I know we needed this deal. I know what it meant to us. He rose to leave, but Watson handed the young man back his envelope and said, why would I accept this when I've just invested several million dollars in your education? Jesus took on those disciples because he wanted to invest in them. They were told there is only one way for you to grow, one way for you to achieve, one way for you to develop. And you have failed in that way. You have failed in life. But Jesus wanted to say to them, I'm not done with you yet. I'm going to help you grow. I'm going to develop you and empower you. Jesus spent time with these young guys to physically model a new way for them to operate, a new way to grow community, a new way to build up individuals, and a new way to see people coming into the light. Nurturing disciples can be messy. Jesus and Watson saw that. Time and time again, the disciples got it wrong. But Jesus never gave up on them. He kept bringing the disciples back to a place of restoration, a place where they could be made whole over and over again. Thomas Watson had to find a way to recuperate that money. But firing the young salesman or letting him resign was not one of them. Watson saw that here was an opportunity for that young man to take on a responsibility greater than he could ever imagine and develop a potential greater than he had ever been told before. To create a space for the young salesman to ask the question, how am I worth several million dollars? But also to create the space for the young man to find that answer. Watson wanted the young salesman to know that his work and his career had not finished yet. We too may have been let down or disappointed by people who we have invested in. But discipleship calls us to sit in that mess, to help be the support that picks the people up out of it, 
to create the space that allows for mistakes and the encouragement that minimizes the opportunity for repetition. Nurturing disciples ask us to hand out and view responsibility as an honor to be held and not a pressure to perform. Discipleship says, you will be greater than me. John chapter 14 says this, very truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing and they will do even greater things because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Discipling people is helping them to become better than you. Discipleship enables people and visions to continue to grow far beyond our own time. To make passionate disciples is to equip people with our knowledge, with our experience, with our skills and with our gifts, to create the space to avoid the mistakes that we have made ourselves, but also to allow people to grow from their own mistakes and for them to build a better picture for what is to come, to prepare the way for something bigger than themselves. Nurturing disciples is also to know when to release people that will allow them to grow and be more effective in who they may be called to be, to recognize their skills, their talents, their gifts, and their hearts and desires, and to cheer them on to find that support. We're called to celebrate people in their journey, even if that journey is no longer aside us. John 1 says this. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When John's disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Nurturing disciples is about recognizing when we can't take people on any further by helping them to find the people that can. It is also recognizing that disciples come in all shapes and sizes. The youngest street pastor we have is 18 years old and the oldest street pastor we have is 93 years old. You are never too young or too old to be discipled and to be equipped to serve. The message of Jesus is still, I'm not done with you yet. But who or what is discipling us? As Christ Church, we are asked to make passionate disciples. But how are we becoming passionate disciples ourselves? As we are pouring of ourselves into others, who or what is pouring into us? Who or what is growing that seed that has been planted in us? Who or what is watering us? Who or what is preparing the ground for our foundation? Nurturing disciples is all about holding people to account because by doing so, we show them 
that we care for them and we love them and we want what's best for them. But it's also about the grace and willingness to be held to account by the people that love and care for us. Nurturing disciples doesn't require us to be perfect because we will never get there. But it requires us to be humble enough to know our limitations, to own up to our mistakes so that we can fully receive the forgiveness that transforms us. It requires us to keep coming back to the source so that we can be filled over and over again with the promise of life in all its glory. To be in harmony with the Spirit, as we learn from the passage in Corinthians, that is where our wisdom and that is where our guidance comes from. We are called to be with the Father as the Father is with us, to seek after Jesus as he sought and died for us. A few years ago, I used to work in a Bible college in Watford, and I had a great friend and teacher called Andrew Ollerton. He was a brilliant academic. By the time he was 18, he had already learned Biblical Hebrew and Greek, and then went on to write his own Bible commentary. I was inspired by his wisdom and his ability to grasp the book that has brought me so much life. He went on to pray with me, took time to teach and invest in me, showed me ways and showed me in my life where the Spirit was clearly moving and also where the Spirit wasn't. He taught me so much and was an important figure in my own growth. And there are many faces in this congregation that have had a huge impact on me in the past 17 years who have also journeyed with me. People who literally patch up walls in this building after I may have physically put my foot through them. People who run after me because I have rung the bell not knowing that by ringing it, it could collapse and fall on my head. People who have continued to cheer me on. People who pray for me on a regular basis without my knowing. House groups and their leaders who constantly tell me to slow down because of the love and the care that they have for me. Nurturing disciples is also about being able to honour those that have enabled you to be where you are today. To recognise that there are always people there to support you. To provide the space for you to increase in your journey. Nurturing disciples is also about being encouraged to celebrate the discipline. The root word of discipline and disciples is the Latin root discere, which means to learn. Nurturing disciples is all about enabling learning for both teacher and pupil. To learn how we can encourage others and in the process learn more about our own character. Nurturing disciples takes this learning to focus on aspects of our Christian walk. The discipline to sit with the Bible text to find the solid food that will form our foundations. To come before a compassionate and just God who hears our prayers as they fill up golden bowls with incense. To wait upon the Spirit who calls us closer so that they can whisper to us the truth and the love 
particularly when we find ourselves in the storm. The discipline to break bread and take the cup as a sign of fellowship and worship. The discipline to open our hearts to the one who will hold it preciously because he wants to guard us with his peace. But also the discipline to sit at his feet so that we can simply be and know that he is God. Jude came in to speak at Rise a few weeks back about the Great Commission. I often remember the part of the passage that says, go and make disciples and baptise people. But the verse just before that says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, therefore, the go and make disciples is a follow-on from recognising the authority with whom we've been asked to do it with. We are not called to disciple people in our own strength. Jesus did all of this under the authority of the Father, but he also went to be restored with the Father regularly. He discipled people in line with the love of God and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to show that there is a different way to operate. There is a different way to live. He came as the good shepherd and he equipped us as his sheep to know and to hear his voice. He used that voice to call us out of the boat. He used that voice to raise us from the dead. He used that voice to shine a light upon us, but also to shine a light upon injustice. And he has equipped us with that voice to call upon others to hear him too. Jesus laid the foundation for us to thrive, for us to flourish. Jesus shone his light on us as he discipled us, but also revealed to us that he is the source of that light. Our role is to use that light to shine onto others, and in doing that, helping them to see that he is the provider of their light to help people see the transformation that Jesus promises by recognising our own transformation. Our call to nurturing disciples is to look out for people for us to spend time with, for us to do life with, to share ourselves with and to invest in, in the hope that we will build each other up, cheer each other on, to grow with them, to seek a new way to be human, to show a new way to be human, and to be the difference that Jesus is and will ever be to us. We may not think that we know what we're doing. We may not feel equipped or good enough or wise enough or worthy enough to disciple people or to be discipled ourselves. But Jesus wants you to know he's not finished with you yet. At the end of the gospel is the promise, surely I am always with you to the very end of the age. Our call to go and make disciples and baptise them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is our call to equip people to serve, to be equipped to serve but to usher in the kingdom of heaven 
as it is here on earth, with each step, with each breath, and with each word that we take on our journey. Amen. Okay, so let's wait upon God now.